Hey, welcome to the Living Messenger Podcast, where we discuss God's simple truths and His gospel. I'm your host, Andrew O'Neill. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I appreciate you joining me again. Um, I'm sorry, a little late this month with everything. Uh, I've been trying to study Matthew 24, and there's just been so much information to try to wrap your head around that it's kind of mind-blowing. And most of this comes from uh, the sermons that Stephen Bohr has done. He's done this whole series in Matthew 24, and I haven't even fully got through it because there's just so much information. So hopefully I can bring out just some of that and that you can learn something. And if you want to learn more, I highly recommend that you look up uh, his series. You just type in Stephen Bohr, Matthew 24 on YouTube, and his whole series will pop up for you to watch. All right, so let's get started. So what makes Matthew 24 so unique that it's imperative that we understand it? The one thing I love about this chapter is that it's talking about prophecy and the end of times. But the difference is that everything is in chronological order, meaning you don't have to jump from Daniel to Revelation and compare texts to figure out what's going on. Plus, the disciples directly ask Jesus, when will the end of time be? And Jesus answers that question in his own words, giving us insight that only he can. And Ellen G. White weighs in also on Matthew 24, kind of showing how important this chapter is. She says, The 24th chapter of Matthew is presented to me again and again as something that is to be brought to the attention of all. We are today living in the time when the predictions of this chapter are fulfilling. Let our ministers and teachers explain these prophecies to those whom they instruct. Let them leave out their discourses, matters of minor consequences, and present the truths that will decide the destiny of souls. And that's from Gospel Workers, page 148. And I think the best way to kind of go over this is we're just going to read Matthew 24 verse by verse, and we'll just kind of go over every verse and try to explain everything, and hopefully everything makes sense. So let's get started. All right, so just to give you a little pretext, um, this chapter is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Jesus is predicting um, that all these things are going to happen um, before Jerusalem is destroyed. And this is also a kind of glimpse to what's going to happen at the end of days also. So it's kind of a twofold meaning of what's going on here. So let's start with the first two verses here. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. So obviously Jesus is talking about that not even a stone will be left. And Ellen G. White also says, The ruin of Jerusalem was a symbol of the final ruin that shall overwhelm the world. The prophecies that received a partial fulfillment in the overthrow of Jerusalem have a more direct application to the last days. We are now standing on the threshold of a great and solemn events. A crisis is before us, such as the world has never witnessed. So here she's saying there is another meaning to the end times here. 
And one thing I really like about this and what uh, Stephen Bohr brings out is the history and how it all blends together. Um, Josephus, a historian, um, he was an actual a mediator for the Romans. And when negotiations uh, failed, he witnessed the siege and aftermath. And he's written several books about uh, the wars of the Jews and some other things. I'm going to refer to him uh, pretty often because uh, he's a great historian and kind of confirms a lot of what Ellen G. White in the Bible says. So here he says, Now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, for they would not have spared any, had there remained any other work to be done. Titus Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. So it pretty much confirms that there is nothing left. Um, so let's go on to verse 3. Now as he sat in the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will the sign of your coming and in the end of your age? So this is kind of interesting because obviously this is talking about the destruction of the temple and how hard that must have been for the disciples to understand. So they directly came to Jesus and asked him privately, you know, when is this going to happen? And it's also kind of interesting. It seems like they kind of pick up on that there is a second meaning, dual meaning to this and ask when, um, when, when will be the sign of your coming? And so Ellen Joyce says, Jesus did not answer his disciples taking up separately the destruction of Jerusalem and the great day of his coming. He mingled the description of these two events. Had he opened to his disciples future events as he beheld them, they would have been unable to endure the sight. In mercy to them, he blended the description of the two great crises, leaving the disciples to study out the meaning for themselves. When he referred to the destruction of Jerusalem, his prophetic words reached beyond the, that event to the final conflagration in that day when the Lord shall rise out of his place to punish the world for their iniquity. When the earth shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain, the entire discourse was given, not for the disciples only, but for those who should live in the last scenes of the earth's history. And that's from Desires of Ages, page 628. All right, let's go on to verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. Obviously, Jesus is warning us that there's going to be many people in Jerusalem that's going to try to deceive them and in times. And I think we've seen that numerous times. And you're going to actually see that Jesus is going to repeat that numerous times that we need to be aware of uh, deception and people of prophets and stuff. <clears throat> okay, verse 5. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Um, it's interesting that he says, in my name, and deceive many. If they claim to be in my name, doesn't that mean it will be fellow Christians or even possibly pastors, leaders that would uh, deceive us? And uh, here's another quote from uh, Josephus, the historian, who says, Moreover, impostors and deceivers called upon the mob to follow them into the desert, for they said that they would show them unmistakable marvels and signs that would be wrought in harmony with God's design. And Ellen G. White also says the same thing. Many false messiahs will appear, claiming to work miracles and declaring that the time of the deliverance of the Jewish nation has come. These will mislead many. Christ's words were fulfilled. Between his death and the siege of Jerusalem, many false messiahs appeared. So that's just kind of awesome. You know, you have an historian, you have Ellen G. White, you're having the Bible, and they all are in harmony with each other, explaining exactly what's going on. 
All right, let's move on to verse six. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So we're going to go through a lot of quotes here um, in the next few verses. Um, Ellen G. White says, Prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, men wrestled for the supremacy. Emperors were murdered. Those supposed to be standing next to the throne were slain. There were wars and rumors of wars. Um, and then verse 7, For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. It's interesting to note that uh, nations means a group of people associated by geographical circumstances. So kingdoms has a much more political meaning, as it could be anyone who's a leader of a group of territories. So theoretically, you know, if we're talking modern day, you know, terrorist groups do fit that category. So I just kind of thought was an interesting way of looking at that. Um, all right. If we go to Acts 11.28, um, it's kind of interesting how this is kind of describing, predicting of what's what it's going to be like in that time. So verse 7 talks about uh, famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places, kingdom against kingdom. So in Acts 11.28, they say, Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there were going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So predicting that there was going to be great famine, which the Bible verse confirms. And then Jure also says, Thousands perished from famine and pestilence. Natural afflictions seemed to have been destroyed. Husbands robbed their wives and wives their husbands. Children had been seen snatching the food from the mouths of their aged parents. Deuteronomy even uh, predicts uh, what will happen. Um, Deuteronomy 25, or 28, 56-57 The tender and delicate woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity, will refuse to the husband of her bosom, and to her son and her daughter, her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. So just think about that. Deuteronomy is talking about a woman who will eat her own children because she is so scared in the distress of the enemy at their gates that she actually eats her own children for, from being hungry and just being scared. Lamentations also uh, confirms that. The hands of the compassionate woman have cooked their own children. They became food for them in the destruction of the daughter of my people. So it's interesting. Josephus even talks about this. So he says, In the meantime, countless thousands of Jews died of hunger. In every house where there was the least morsel of food, relatives fought over it. Gaping with hunger, the outlaws prowled around like mad dogs, gnawing at anything, belts, shoes, and even the leather from their shields. Others devoured wisps of hay, and then there was the incredible horror of Mary of Bethesda. Now, Mary of Bethesda, uh, he goes on to describe uh, how she ate her own baby because of her hunger and goes into great detail about it. And here Ellen G. White even says, So fierce were the pangs of hunger that men would gnaw the leather of their belts and sandals and the covering of their shields. Great numbers of the people would steal out at night to gather wild plants growing outside the city walls. Though many were seized and put to death with cruel torture, and often though 
Those who returned in safety were robbed of what they had gleaned at so great peril. So it's really amazing how history, again, blends perfectly with, you know, the Bible and Ellen G. White. And it just shows that everything fits together and God's word is true. Um, it's also uh, interesting if you, um, obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they're parallels, right? So if we look at the parallel of this chapter, which is Mark um, 13, 8, um, he expands on this verse um, talking about troubles. Um, that was one word that Matthew did not use in his verse, is troubles. And troubles means unrest or turmoils in society. And that was what they used back then. And it's just kind of interesting to note, you know, everything that's happened this past year with troubles uh, of our society, of everything going on that that fits so perf perfectly of, of our society today. All right, let's go on to verse 8. And after all this, this is just the beginning of sorrows. So all these things are the beginning of sorrows. Uh, once we start to see these things, it's only the beginning of what's to come. Remember, this is Jesus himself telling us what is going to happen. The next few verses are in strict chronological order due to the continued use of time expressions, meaning the word then is used to string everything together. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So this is when prosecution is going to start uh, on those who believe in Jesus and obey his laws, right? So let's move on to 10. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And offended means those who forsake the faith they once embraced. So essentially, these will be fellow Christians betraying us, right? It's also kind of interesting that they use the word offended. I mean, again, looking at today's society, we are so offended by everything, right? Um, there's even, what what is it now? Cancel culture, right? So it's just kind of interesting how that fits, that word fits so well on both time time zones, right? Um, all right, uh, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive, deceive many. So again, Jesus is warning us about false prophets. And the Bible actually gives us a definition of what a prophet is. If we read Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 5, it gives us a pretty clear definition of what it's talking about. If there arise among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams and giveth thee a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass, whereof he spake unto thee, saying, Let us go after other gods which thou hast not known, and let us serve them. Thou shalt not hearken unto the words of the prophet or that dreamer of the dreams. For the Lord your God proveth you to know whether ye love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And ye shall serve him and cleave unto him. And that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he hath spoken to turn away from the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of bondage to thrust thee out of the way which the Lord thy God commanded thee to walk in. So shalt thou put the evil away from the midst of thee. And Josephus also touches on this in, in his book, The Wars of the Jews. Now it came to pass while Thaddeus was procurator in Judea that a certain magician whose name was Thaddeus persuaded a great part of the people to take their effects with him and follow him to the river Jordan. For he told them he was a prophet and that he would, 
by his own command divide the river and afford them passage over it. And many were deluded by his words. So again, Jesus is talking about there's going to be so, so many prophets and false signs that we really need to study his word and know what is going on because otherwise we're going to be deceived, right? So let's move on to 12. And became lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. What's the definition of lawlessness? The literal Greek meaning is one without law, either because of ignorance or because of violation. So not only is this a literal breaking of government laws, but also pertains to God laws, right? And looking at today's society, don't you feel like lawlessness abound in both those aspects? With all the riots, capital riots, I mean, it's almost like this is describing what's going on currently, right? It's pretty amazing. And moving on to verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So this is finally kind of a reprieve, right? That if we make it through this, that, you know, we're going to be saved. This is going to be the trying time. And that's not even the worst of it, right? So let's go on to verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the gospel, the good news, right, will be spread to the entire world uh, during this time and will be witnessed to everybody. So now we get into verse 15 and we get into the great tribulation is what the subtitle of my Bible says. Um, so Matthew says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. So what is the abomination of desolation. Um, there's kind of two different uh, ways we can do this. Uh, Daniel um, in 9, 26, 27 actually talks about the abomination of desolation and is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. And if we jump to Luke 21, 20, which also mirrors Matthew 24, he also expands upon this verse and he simplifies the words. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. So this is pretty much giving God's people a warning that this is the time to leave. When you see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, that is the time to get out. And Ellen Joyce says, As the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, so may this apostasy be assigned to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight, never to return. The people of God will then be plunged into those scenes of affliction and distress which prophets have described as a time of Jacob's trouble. And that's from Testimonies for the Church. And if you look at the history, it's kind of interesting. Jerusalem was initially destroyed once. It was rebuilt. and I think it was in 67 AD is when the armies of Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem. Now, um, they actually didn't destroy it, uh, the city at that time and left for three years. And that gave God's people enough time. They knew that was a sign and they left. Uh, that was a time to flee to the mountains, which is the next verse. It was given time to flee. And that was their warning sign. So, what do you think uh, the end time abomination of desolation is for us? Um, God gave, you know, the Jews, um, his people, a warning of the destruction of Jerusalem. What do you think our sign is to flee the cities 
and get out um, before everything's destroyed. Um, if we look at it, Jerusalem, there was two distinct groups of people in Jerusalem, right? Those that followed God's laws and knew the signs and those that didn't. Um, I guess you could say that in at end times, it's going to be two distinct groups also. And what's going to divide us at the end of times? Those that follow God's laws and those that don't, right? Ellen G. White says, as this has become a spiritual point of controversy throughout Christendom, and religious and secular authors have combined to enforce the observance of the Sunday, the persistent refusal of a small minority to yield to the popular demand will make them objects of universal execration. It will be urged that the few who stand in opposition to an institution of the church and a law of the state ought not to be tolerated, that it is better for them to suffer than for the whole nations to be thrown into confusion and lawlessness. The same argument many centuries ago was brought against Christ by the rulers of the people. It is expedient for us, said the wily Caiaphas, that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. John 11.50 The argument will appear conclusive, and a decree will finally be issued against those who hollow the Sabbath on the, of the fourth commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. And that's kind of interesting, um, just kind of talking about this whole coronavirus, I guess, of how we're all talking about the common good of everyone and how that's a, just a theme. And sure, like, it is, you know, we need to be healthy and self-conscious um, to protect ourselves and others, but you can just kind of see this overriding theme of a common good and how this will definitely play into the end times. Um, let's move on to 16. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Um, so obviously, once they saw those armies, they knew to flee. Uh, Bible scholar Adam Clark uh, later wrote, It is very remarkable that not a single Christian perished in the destruction of Jerusalem, though though there were many when Siestus uh, Gallus invested the city and he had preserved in the siege, he would soon have rendered himself master of it. But when he unexpectedly and unaccountably raised the siege, the Christians took the opportunity to escape. As Vespian was approaching with his army, all who believed in Christ left Jerusalem and fled to Pella and other places beyond the river Jordan. And so they all marvelously escaped the general shipwreck of their country. Not one of them perished. So everybody who studied God's word knew the warning they were all saved. And what better analogy than for today. If we study God's word and know the signs, we will be saved. And let's go ahead and read 17 through 20. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Stephen Bohr on that last verse, uh, play, pray that your flight might not be on the winter or on the Sabbath. Um, he kind of he makes the analogy or states that, you know, stating that your flight's not on winter or Sabbath, there would only be Sabbath keepers of those people who flee Jerusalem. It wouldn't be anyone else. It would only be Sabbath keepers, which is kind of an interesting uh, way to look at it. Uh, let's read twenty one, twenty two. 
For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. And it's kind of interesting that Jesus starts to balloon the destruction of Jerusalem to talking about end times, I think, in this verse. Uh, the verse is very telling when he says, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. We know from history account that all the Christians escaped who heeded Jesus' warning, right? But here he talks about those days being shortened for the elect's sake. Elect's sake. And why will they be shortened? Because of persecution and destruction, right? Against Jesus' people. And let's read 23 through 27. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is a Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and the flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For whoever, wherever the carcass is, there will be eagles will be gathered together. Again, Jesus is warning us about false prophet, prophets, but this time he even says false Christs. And, you know, this is going to even fool the elect, right? Which is our people who are in high positions of power, people who are pastors, people who are high up in the church. So you would think there would be some pretty amazing miracles and things going on to deceive people, right? And last verse is kind of interesting because there's a couple of definitions. For whatever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. So there's a couple of different uh, interpretations. Uh, I kind of like this explanation from Elcott's commentary. And it says, What the disciples should witness in the fall of Jerusalem would repeat itself scores of times in the world's history and be fulfilled on the largest scale at the end of all things. The words of Isaiah and Ezekiel in which the ravenous bird is a symbol of the nations who do the work of destruction to which God sends them illustrate the meaning of the generalized law which is here asserted. And I kind of like that. God sends them, right? This is no matter who's in power, no matter what's going on in the world, God's you know promises are going to be fulfilled no matter who it is. And I kind of like that. Um, another uh, definition that uh, Bohr talks about is that the eagle represents Rome, which is their prominent symbol. Um, the armies, right, had their symbol, just Roman general also, was of an eagle spread out. And there's a lot of striking similarity between Rome and the United States. Um, obviously, the U.S. Uh, kind of took a lot of Roman images and things. If you look at our dollar bill, um, things in the capital, everything is kind of copied after Rome. So saying that, you know, for wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together, um, kind of predicts maybe, you know, something in Rome will have a part of this, you know, at the end of times, which we know according to prophecy, it will. Uh, let's move on to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus is literally talking about the sun going dark and the stars falling before he comes. If we look at Luke 21, 25, 26, it goes into a little more detail there. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and in the stars and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves warring, men's hearts failing them from fear 
and the expectations of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of heaven will be shaken. Nations and even men will be fearful of what's going of what's happening, right? There will even be a great earthquake. Ellen Dwight says, uh, Prophecy not only foretells the manner and object of Christ's coming, but presents tokens by which men are to know when it is near. Said Jesus, The sun shall be darkened, and the moon shall give her light, and the stars of heaven shall fall, and the powers that are in heaven shall be taken. And then shall they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. So it's kind of awesome that when we see these things, we know that God's actual coming will be very close. Um, Verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. What do you think the sign of the Son of Man is? Um, At the end of the verse, it says, The sign of the Son of Man is coming in great clouds. And if we also look at 1 Kings 18.41-46, it tells the story of Elijah, who is praying for rain. He told his servants to keep looking towards the sea to see if any rain was coming, which would be a sign. On the seventh time, the servants saw, and I quote, a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. The sky became black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy rain. Interesting enough, Elijah was taken to heaven by a chariot of fire soon after this event which is obviously similar to what God will do for us when he comes to rescue us at his second coming. So it's kind of cool how there's, you know, it kind of refers to Elijah, kind of confirms this, and of the clouds is the sign of the Son of Man. So it's kind of cool. All right, and we'll finish here with the last verse. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. So... What a beautiful day that will be, right? It's almost unimaginable. And I really like that God warns us in his own words of what's to come and assures us that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. And what great assurance is that? So that's all I got. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much and you were able to get something out of it. Like I said, I highly recommend that you listen and watch uh, Stephen Bohr's uh, sermons on this. He goes in much better detail than I do, and it is amazing to kind of see how everything fits together. And uh, thanks, and hopefully I will come out with another one here in a couple weeks. All right, thanks, guys. Bye.